Today, I do want to talk about something that I believe is a hallmark of New Philly as a church, something that is actually very rare to find in this day and age, but also something that is so central to who we are that I believe I will be preaching on this over and over again from time to time. So today's message is titled Wasteful Worship, Wasteful Worship. So if you have your Bibles with, uh, with you, please open up to Matthew chapter 26. It's a very famous passage. Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13. I also have some slides for you uh, to follow along if you don't have your Bibles with you. So Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. This is actually a passage that comes at the heels of a larger passage that we will be going deep into uh, this sowing season through our house churches. So this is after, you know, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 26, verses 6 through 13. And it reads, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, by the way, terrible to be known as Simon the leper, right? Uh, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? They asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so as we go into this very familiar passage today, I want to draw your attention to three different things that we often overlook when we get very caught up or we become uh, overly familiar with this passage. One of the most important points from this passage is that Jesus is calling us to, number one, embrace the cost. Not avoid the cost, not diminish the cost, but to embrace the cost. This woman brought an alabaster jar of a very expensive perfume. And I don't know about you guys, but I am all about finding a good deal. Like I want a bang for my buck. Like I want to pay as little as possible and get as much as possible for my money's worth. And many of us, you know, have that mentality. I want to put in the least effort and get the most out of this. But this woman didn't have this mentality at all. She actually embraced the cost. Let me ask you this question. What if she had brought maybe half an alabaster jar or an alabaster jar of medium range, you know, medium price perfume? I think Jesus would have been also very blessed. But what makes the story, you know, so, um, you know, so powerful is that she didn't feel like this was a waste. This was money well spent. Time well spent, resources well spent. It was an inordinately disproportionate and over-the-top act of worship. And that was the point. Because worship that is calculated and transactional, number one, is not worship at all. It's actually legalism. The way that we think about it is, okay, let me pay for my blessing, Lord. 
Let me earn my way into your favor. See my church attendance. See how many hours I've clocked in prayer. Now you have to bless me. And so it's this idea of I'll give you this and you give me this in return. It's very transactional in nature. So number one, it's not worship, actually. It's actually just legalism. It's a transaction. But also number two, worship that is calculated and transactional is also mathematically wrong. So you're not just calculating, but you're calculating wrong. It's like you put all your mind into it and you say one plus one is zero. It's like you are doing math, but you're doing math completely wrong at the same time. So we tend to think, well, God bless me 10 units. So I must owe him 10 units. I need to pay back those 10 units. But the truth of the matter is God has blessed you infinity units, right? He He has blessed you beyond your understanding. And we don't owe him these 10 units. We owe him our lives. He has forgiven your sins over and over again. He has saved you from the pit. He has fought your battles. He has given you hope and a future. He has brought healing and breakthrough into your life. He has blessed you with the ability to bless others. And he has sustained you through difficult times. He has given you every breath that you breathe even right now. And according to Romans 12, we are called to, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. In other translations, this is your true and reasonable logical, proportionate, logical act of worship. It means that God has given you so much mercy that the only thing that is logical would be to give him your entire life, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Even if we were to give him every second of every day until we breathe our last, even then it would fall short of what we owe God. But the good news is that God, like a good father, He loves every big and small act of worship. He loves it every time you choose to say yes to him. He loves it when you fight through temptation and choose him. He loves it when you push past boredom and over-familiarity and inconvenience and distraction to tell him that he's worthy of your time. He loves it when you choose to fight your flesh To not choose what is easier and faster and cheaper and instead you choose what is better. In fact, all over the Bible, we see God celebrating and highlighting and savoring this thing called costly worship, wasteful worship. When David says, I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing in 2 Samuel 14. Did you know that he could have given him something free? So it's like, imagine Pastor JP were to say like, hey, um, I I just wanted to really bless you. So I'm going to give you, you know, uh, 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 you know, like a a free meal. And I'm like, no, 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 I refuse to. I need to pay for it. I'm not going to let you, you know, pay for it. It's like something that I could have gotten for free. Instead, he insists in giving God something that actually will cost him. He insists on paying. It's the opposite of what we do when we negotiate. And when we haggle, he's actually insisting, I cannot pay nothing for this. I must, it must hurt. It must cost. It must be a sacrifice so that I can give it to the Lord. 
In Matthew 2, at Mark 2, when we see Jesus looking at a poor widow giving two copper coins to the temple out of her poverty and lack, and she does it with joy, Jesus draws everybody's attention to that lady. And he says, what she is doing is beautiful before the Lord. And when apostle after apostle, disciple after disciple laid down their lives to follow Jesus, even unto death, he says, that is pleasing in my sight. Costly worship can look like many different things. It can look like a song from the depths of your heart. It can look like generous giving when you feel the Holy Spirit's prompting. It can look like taking a train two hours on a Sunday to worship together. It can look like showing up to house church when you don't feel like it. It can look like helping set up chairs before worship service. It can look like carving out time in your busy schedule to spend time in his word. It can look like all these different things, but whatever it is, if it's done for Jesus, and if you've ever felt like, man, this is hard, that's when you know you've stepped into costly worship. When you feel that pinch, when, when you feel like it hurts a little bit, that's when you finally stepped into costly worship. So this is my exhortation to all of us. Don't try to haggle for a better deal, but actually embrace the cost. It blesses Jesus more than you know. And only in eternity to come will we actually know what every simple act of worship meant to the Lord. And for those who feel like, man, I'm just not that type of person. Like, I'm not that kind of over the top, like yell during worship, like lift up my hands kind of person. I'm just not that type type of person. Or if you're saying it just doesn't come naturally to me, that's the whole point. It shouldn't come naturally to you. It's costly. But let me challenge you with this. In your most perfect, most sinless, original state, you were created to worship and love and pursue God wholeheartedly. That's how you were made. That's how you were designed. Unashamedly pursuing God wholeheartedly. And so this is for you. I don't want anybody to walk out of here feeling like, well, I, I'm disqualified from this. Like, I don't really need to. Like, yeah, maybe this is for a certain kind of people. No, this is for all of us as believers. Costly, wasteful, wholehearted worship. The second thing that Jesus draws our attention to and calls us to do, just like this woman, I I hate to say this bluntly, but we need to ignore the haters. Yeah? We need to ignore the haters. The haters will also always say, why this waste, right? To haters, it's always going to look like waste. The fact is that what Jesus called beautiful is by onlookers called a waste, And this is very revealing of what these people think Jesus is worth. The point that Jesus is trying to make in this interaction is that extravagant worship born out of a pure heart of thanksgiving, no strings attached, no cost too high, will always look wasteful to the hater, but beautiful to the receiver. In fact, it will be downright offensive to those who'd rather keep it transactional and calculated. There will always, and I mean always, there will always be haters. And that's just a fact of life. And the justification and the logic will always sound pretty reasonable, right? These disciples were saying, look, 
we could have just, you know, invested this differently. We could have made this more productive. It always sounds reasonable. Now, I'm not saying that illogical is inherently good and logical is inherently bad. Let's not oversimplify this. But to answer the question, why this waste? The answer to that question is, you must not know what Jesus is like. You must not know what Jesus is worth. So let me give you this example. Imagine someone paid omanan, 50,000 won, for a small bunch of flowers. Now that's pretty expensive, right? So a small bunch of flowers, it's omanan. You spent omanan on just a small bunch of flowers. Most of us would say omanan, like 50,000 won. That is such a waste. You paid 50,000 won for something that's going to die in four days. You paid, you paid 50,000 won for something that's just like pretty and aesthetic, but it's not really useful in any way. You could have used that to get 10 cups of coffee or you could have used that for 12 meals at McDonald's or whatever. You can always use some rationale, but ask someone who is in love. Ask someone who's in love. They'll say 50,000 won sounds like a waste to you but you have no idea how much this person means to me. You have no idea. These flowers and this cost, it actually falls short of showing them how much I love them. I wish I could give them the world. It's a shame that I can only use Omanon. It always looks like a waste to someone who is not in love. There will always be people who say your worship is too much. And I know this because I used to be one of the haters. Yeah, I used to be one of the haters. Uh, Look at people worshiping God extravagantly, giving generously, loving others selflessly. And I'd be like, look, you just got to be balanced. Look, you just got you can't just go all in like that. That's a little embarrassing. Like keep some dignity, you know, like I used to be one of those haters. And so I know that that's just a fact of life until I encountered God for myself. And that's when everything changed. That's when all of a sudden, these extravagant acts of worship, they seem reasonable to me. They seem logical to me. Up until then, I'll look at these people and be like, they're crazy. And after encountering God, I was like, no, that looks just about right. That looks just about right, considering what Jesus deserves. Until my heart was actually hit by the power of the gospel. Until I finally understood that I'm forgiven much and therefore I'm called to love much. I never really understood this. So here's what Jesus says. Don't pay the haters any mind. Jesus didn't. Jesus says, why are you bothering this woman? It's like, that's like none of your business. Like where this, where this perfume is going. That's none of your business. Leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? Now, let me get a little bit you know, personal here. There's been people in my life who are very uncomfortable with how I pursue God. Not just like a few months here and there. Not just a, you know, not a few weeks here and there where I feel like I'm on fire. But year after year, season after season. And there's been times when there's been setbacks. There's been disappointments. Frustrations. Unexpected things that have come into my life. And whenever those things happen, the first people to speak up are the people who will say, don't you regret how you've spent that time? Don't you regret having God, giving God everything? Don't you wish you had kept a little bit to yourself? Don't you wish you would have spent those years differently? And my answer is, 
it was not for you. <laughs> it was for God. I don't regret it at all. I wish I could have loved Jesus even more. I wish I could have more to give to him. This is my, my encouragement to you. You will never regret something that you've given to the Lord in a costly way that was for him and for him alone. Don't let people embarrass you about that or guilt trip you into like, man, you should have done something differently. When you've given it to the Lord, that's for him to be blessed. That is for him to keep. And the haters can say whatever they want. Now, just because someone says what you don't want to hear doesn't mean, this is a disclaimer, right? It doesn't automatically mean that they're haters. So don't go around and say, hater, hater, hater. Like, don't go around saying that, okay? You can't be sitting there thinking that you're being unfairly accused or persecuted or whatnot just because people don't agree with you. There can be great wisdom, great constructive criticism that can come from believers and unbelievers alike. You just can't wholesale throw it all out. Because I've also had brave brothers and sisters tell me in the past what I don't want to hear. And in the end, they were right. But this is why this last point is the most important. This last point. The first thing, you know, was embrace the cost. The second thing is ignore the haters. There will, they will always be there. Third is make it about Jesus, period. It's, you know, Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing to me, not to y'all. To me, this was for me. And that's the way that I see it. That's the way that I, I'm going to write about it. If it's extravagant, but not for Jesus, then I hope there's people in your life that will love you enough to point you to what is right. But what this woman did, yes, it was for the sake of witnesses. Yes, it was a sake for us, even as indirect readers, people who are witnessing it third hand and the generations that came after but Jesus makes it abundantly clear that she has done a beautiful thing to me. It was for me. I'm glad it serves as a lesson for the haters and an illustration for generations to come. But right now, right here, it's something that's done for me. Now, I'm sad that this even needs to be said. But sometimes church can become about everything but Jesus. It can become about everything. But Jesus, it can be about a multitude of things that are good and noble, but not, not what's ultimate. You know, a church can become about community for community's sake, growth for growth's sake, impact for impact's sake. It can even be about doctrine for doctrine's sake. And you can very quickly lose sight of the fact that the only thing it should be about is about Jesus, primarily ultimately about Jesus. I hate to be Captain Obvious, but that's the way it is. If this church ever becomes so slick and so sophisticated and so well-developed and trendy and we have programs and we do all these things, but it's not a church that is in love with Jesus, then we have failed as a church. I need to say that again. I love that we want to do all these other things, but we need to make sure that it's mainly about Jesus. If that is not our centerpiece, if that is not the foundation on which everything else is built upon, then we failed as a church. I'm not trying to overstate this or exaggerate this, but this is a non-negotiable for our church because we've gotten down this road before. 
We've lost our way before. We've lost sight of our first love before. And so this is my commitment to you as a lead pastor. Our church can be about a lot of things, but the one thing that I simply refuse to compromise in is that this will be a church that loves Jesus extravagantly, sacrificially, relentlessly, through the hardships, through the dry spells, through the disappointing, through the seasons of healing, through the loss, through the seasons of abundance and lack, mountaintop seasons and valley seasons, we're going to be a church that loves Jesus. My desire is that having experienced the highs and the lows, the times of excitement and the times of boredom, the times where we feel like we've gained everything, the times where we feel like we've lost everything. My desire is that this church, in the words of Job, would go through it all and then fall to the ground in worship and say, naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Many of you are familiar with somebody called Jeremy Riddle. He's a very you know, well-known worship leader and songwriter. And he recently published a book where he's exhorting a new generation of worshipers to not make it about worship. Don't worship worship. Does that make sense? Because you can do that. You can worship this. You can make worship an idol. And so he is relentless when it comes to this. He says, love is the only thing strong enough to lift the seduction of influence, the brokenness of selfish ambition off of our lives. Love is the only thing powerful enough to set us free from comparison, self-importance, self-obsession, pride, anxiety, insecurity, and fear. Love is the only force capable of awakening this next generation of worshipers. It will not be all the newest and coolest things we keep chasing. It will only be the sound of pure love for Jesus. Worship will be reclaimed by lovers. When life sifts you, when when disappointment and offense come at you, When pain shakes you and failure threatens to overwhelm you, let it reduce you to love. Love is the only foundation God desires to build upon. Forget there is an industry, a worship industry. Forget there's a career to be had or a model of how to be a quote-unquote worship leader. That model is broken. Instead, be someone in love. Love is the only difference between a song and a ringing gong. This is what Jeremy Riddle says. And this is someone who has, is a seasoned leader in this entire world, in this entire culture that has been built around worship. If I may speak candidly, this hunger for Jesus, this purity in worship, this incessant and extravagant pursuit of God, this childlike faith is... And also was a hallmark of New Philly. It is what made me actually fall in love with this community in the first place. Back in 2008, I stepped into a sanctuary and I was so shocked. First of all, it was jam-packed. And I felt like this must be, you know, a hazard, you know, a fire hazard or something. But it was a room that was packed full of young people 
who are just overflowing with worship, singing out of tune, you know, all of that. But they were, I knew one thing for sure. They were in love with Jesus. And I felt like, okay, I've been to many different churches, but I don't know what this is about. Like I have no grid for this. And I know that as soon as I stepped in, there's something here for me as well. That's what really made me fall in love with this community. And for a few years in the in-between, between then and now, as a community, we became a little bit too enamored with our reputation, with our name, with our empire. We became too enamored about everything but Jesus. There were good things. We're church planting, we're multiplying, we're, we're becoming more influential in the city. We were having all these programs for leadership development. We had all these things going for us, but the one thing that mattered the most was very quickly falling between the cracks. And that was a very quickly became about everything but Jesus. Again, it wasn't something evil. It wasn't like we were, you know, Satan followers, you know, or anything like that. It was something good. It was like, hey, let's get community going. Let's get all these events going. Let's get, you know, uh, you know, all these things in, in, in line. And we're going to be growing the church and we're expanding. And all these things are great. But the thing that mattered the most, we, lose, we lost sight of. And that was a love for Jesus. Now, this recent season has been a season where Jesus, in turn, has been ruthlessly clearing out the temple in the same way that he did 2,000 years ago. Exposing broken models of celebrity Christianity. Exposing broken models of Christian imperialism. Shining a light on every ulterior motive. Revealing every idol. Exposing every foundation that isn't Jesus. And it's not because he's spiteful, but it's because he's merciful. He is saving the church from the church. He is a jealous bridegroom who knows that the bride cannot live on anything other than her bridegroom. Jesus is jealous for his bride, and he will not have her share her affections and her allegiance with any other. So this is my exhortation to you today. You know, parents in the back, there's an entire generation that needs to know that loving Jesus extravagantly is not just for the young people who have all this free time, you know? Parents, the younger generation needs to know that this is for life, that you can run hard after Jesus, even when things become very inconvenient and you have all these different things to take care of. Love Jesus wastefully. Singles. Creation is groaning to see people who will love Jesus with abandon. People that will declare with their lives that Jesus is sufficient and Jesus is enough. So love Jesus wastefully. Office workers, let your light shine in the marketplace. Where, what better place than to shine the light of Christ? Live your way. Live your life in a way where you preach to others that your treasure is not of this world. Where better, what better place than the marketplace to live out that kind of life? Teachers, these children you see every day that can be cute one moment and annoying the next. In the lifelong race to what culture deems 
success. They may or may not ever get a chance to witness somebody who genuinely carries the love of Jesus. Love Jesus extravagantly. Love him wastefully. New Philly, the world is watching. The world is looking for hope in ways that it never did before. Looking for satisfaction in all the wrong places. Looking for peace from internal torment. Freedom from self-destructive sin. And certainty in the midst of shakings. Let your life, let your decisions, let your testimony point others to the beauty and to the worth of Christ. If we can do that, we have succeeded as a church. Whether we grow in numbers or not, whether we have all these programs or not, we will have succeeded as a church. Now, as I ask the praise team to come back up again, I'm going to close with this. We are celebrating Lent season, the 40 days leading up to Easter Sunday. And as we think about this act of wasteful worship that ultimately prepared Jesus for his burial, know that now it's your turn. It's your turn to not only prepare for his burial, but his resurrection and his ascension as well. You want to know, not that I'm an expert in this, but you want to know the secret to a lifetime of wasteful worship, not just a season here and there, not just a stint here and there, but a a lifetime of wasteful worship. How to not just flare up for a couple of weeks when the music is right and the congregation is loud and when the ambience is just right. When there aren't external things to fuel your song. How to not forget when you grow tired or weary, when you get distracted or anxious or overwhelmed. The secret to a lifetime of wasteful worship is to look upon Jesus. He is the ultimate example of wasteful love. He looked at you and I in our fallenness, in our pride, in our rebellion, in our brokenness, while we were yet sinners. And instead of calculating, instead of heeding to the voice of the the hater or the accuser that said we weren't worth saving, he loved us wastefully nonetheless. He loved us unreservedly, extravagantly, sacrificially. You can look to other religions or tarot cards, or humanism, or whatever it is, wherever it is that you're looking for answers, but I can guarantee you this, there is no God like our God. There is no God like Jesus. A God who not only is all-powerful, but a God who's also love. A God who didn't give us what we deserved, but he gave his very own son, Jesus Christ, who was humiliated, who was beaten, executed like a criminal on a cross not for anything that he had done but for your sins and for mine that we would know the love and the forgiveness of God so if your heart is dry fix your eyes on him feast your heart on him put your hope in him these next few weeks of Lent this is the God who loved wastefully and who according 
to the book of Revelation now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, is surrounded by extravagant day and night worship from angels, from elders, from creation, singing, there is only one who is worthy of all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. This is the God that we fix our eyes on. This is the way to keep our hearts alive. It's not just willpower. As we fix our eyes on who he is, the most logical, the most reasonable act of worship will be extravagant and wasteful worship. So I'm going to invite all of us just to rise to our feet. And we're going to close today with a song of praise. Let me just pray really quick. Father, we acknowledge the weakness of our frame. We acknowledge that we lose our way. We acknowledge that we are so quick to get bored. We acknowledge that we're broken and we're distracted. And there's so many other things for us to fix our eyes on other than you. And so we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would bring transformation to our hearts where there is mixture, God. Would you bring wholehearted worship? Where there are idols, God, lead us back to you. Father, would you confront everything in our hearts, Lord God, that does not belong there, that is not of you, and lead us to a place of extravagant worship. Lead us to a place of wasteful, costly worship. A lifetime that is lived at the feet of Jesus. A lifetime of pouring out our alabaster jar over and over and over again. Over the only one who is worthy. The only one who is beautiful. The only one who is glorious. The only one who is worthy of our entire lives. So we thank you, Father, for what you're doing in our hearts today. Would you remind us of what we're created to do, what you designed us to do, who you designed us to be, worshipers that will anoint your head, anoint your feet with costly worship. We thank you, Father, for today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.